judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any, any more questions, we have provided an argument in this case. Your Honor. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dan Epps. And I'm Will Bode. We're back with the fourth episode in a week, basically. Uh, yeah, I think. At what, po- at what point does this become, you know, scheduled? Never, because we're going to have a huge gap again, I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Aren't you going on vacation again? Of course. Soon, right? Yeah. Okay. Got a couple weeks. We're also, I mean, we are marching through a lot of the big opinions, right? So at a certain point, like, there'll be slightly less urgency. I mean, I think we both, we both had some of the big cases we really wanted to talk about, and we weren't able to, mostly my fault, a little bit your fault, in June, and now we are catching up. But at a certain point, you know, kind of going to run out of stuff, right? Well, once we talk about the big opinions, we can talk about the little opinions. Yeah. Well, big opinions, let's just say right now, the big opinions we're going to talk about, which are the student loan cases, okay? Mm-hmm. Been waiting for us to talk about those. And Counterman versus Colorado, really interesting First Amendment true threats case. What are the little cases? Just to, just to give people a, a set expectations that we will fail to deliver on. But like, what are the little cases you're interested in? I'm interested in a lot of little cases. This arbitration case? Oh, well, maybe not the arbitration case. I'm pretty interested in Arizona versus Navajo Nation, the case about the water rights of the Navajo Nation with a on-brand Justice Gorsuch dissent. That one's interesting. I'd be interested in actually talking about Allen versus Milligan, the voting rights case that we... Yeah, I guess we, we talked about it kind of briefly. Yeah. I think that was interesting. I think this Coinbase versus Bielski case, procedural case, is pretty interesting. Yeah, that was sort of what I was talking about when I said arbitration. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a 5-4. Yeah. 5-4 unusual lineup, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Groff versus DeJoy is pretty interesting. Had a pretty interesting argument. It's the Title Seven case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, listeners, if you are interested in any particular case that we haven't gotten to so far, uh, write in. We may ignore you, but we may not. Yeah. We'll see. And then, you know, maybe we'll come up with other stuff to talk about after we plow through the opinions. Yeah. And we're going to be gearing up for season four. Can you believe that? We're soon going to complete our third season of the show and have a fourth season. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, calling, showing the, showing the doubters wrong, all the people who said we wouldn't last. <laughs> I'm not sure people really said that. I think people mostly just didn't pay attention. But you were thinking it, weren't you? People out there listening, you were wrong. Okay, we'll get to those cases. You wanted to briefly uh, catch people up on what was going on with this Mountain Valley, Valley Pipeline thing. Uh, that's right. I think the last time we recorded, I previewed a case on the Shadow Docket. Mountain Valley Pipeline LLC versus the Wilderness Society, which concerns whether or not they can build this pipeline that goes through West Virginia that Joe Manchin, you know, more or less, you know, personally demanded be included in the <laughs> in federal law. It's good to be Joe Manchin in some ways. And the Congress obliged by passing a a portion of the statute in the I think it's in the debt ceiling legislation. That's like a triple, a triple authorization of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. So first it says, as a matter of federal law, all of the federal, you know, decisions saying this pipeline is okay under NEPA and whatever else, those are all ratified. Those are all correct. So substantively, you know, this is kosher. 
as a matter of jurisdiction. Uh, no court has any jurisdiction to review any of this. So leave it alone, just in case you're in some ways we did something wrong. And then as a matter of venue, any court that's skeptical about the constitutionality of the jurisdiction stripping provision has to stand by and let the DC circuit figure it out instead. Yeah. And that's that's that last thing is is framed in terms of jurisdiction, right? Not just venue. The United venue in that sort of formal sense. So really a jurisdictional rule. So other courts do not have jurisdiction to consider those. The United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit shall have original and exclusive jurisdiction over any claim alleging the invalidity of this section or that an action is beyond the scope of authority conferred by this section. And this is important because there was pending litigation in the Fourth Circuit challenging the pipeline. Um, so the you know effect of that triple threat is supposed to be that surely the Fourth Circuit should stand aside. And if the challengers want to go sue again in the D.C. Circuit, they didn't. They didn't think this through enough because it needed another provision that said any challenge to the provision making the D.C. Circuit's jurisdiction over challenges to the jurisdiction strip have to also be in the D.C. Circuit, right? Uh, what about challenges to that provision? I think you just you need like a recursive function in the statute. You have a section that's just called N plus one for <laughs> any challenge to any section. <laughs> N. I like that. So. After this legislation passed, the Fourth Circuit nonetheless granted a stay of the pipeline pending oral argument, <laughs> uh, at which point the pipeline, represented by former Solicitor General Don Verrilli and Dream Team at Munger Tolls, went to the Supreme Court and said, yeah, please vacate those stays. They, you know, Whatever else, they shouldn't do this. The pipeline's fine. The Fourth Circuit doesn't have jurisdiction over the pipeline, and the Fourth Circuit doesn't even have jurisdiction to decide whether the Fourth Circuit has jurisdiction. So... Tell them to tell them to cut it out. Yeah, they got a ton of amicus briefs on both sides, including the first filed amicus brief, brief amicus curiae of Senator Joe Manchin, <laughs> just weighing in. Um, there was a team of Fed courts professors led by Erwin Chemerinsky, who had fi filed in the Fourth Circuit, arguing that this provision was unconstitutional and somehow all three aspects of the triple threat were impermissible. Uh, you know, they filed. There's a there's a ton of amicus briefing, and. The Supreme Court yesterday on Thursday, July 27th, unanimously vacated the stays. So itself without without opinion. So there's I, one comment that's yeah. that's a little bit. So the the <clears throat> application was an application to vacate the stays, and then it said in the alternative you could treat this as a writ of mandamus. If for some reason, rather than thinking about stays, you just want to say like you're so far out of line. And so the the court says yes, the application to vacate the stays presented to the Chief Justice is granted. You know, blah, blah, blah. The state orders are hereby vacated. Although the court does not reach applicant's suggestion that it treat the application as a petition for writ of mandamus at this time, that determination is without prejudice to further consideration in light of subsequent developments. I take it that's a thinly veiled threat to the Fourth Circuit. Yeah. So uh, not so thinly. <laughs> yeah. The uh, I will say the one thing on the you said that the Congress didn't totally think this through, and that might be right. So the argument made to the Fourth Circuit about why the third level of the triple threat, the D.C. Circuit provision, didn't work, is they said, well, the statute says that the D.C. Circuit has original and exclusive jurisdiction over a claim alleging the invalidity of this section. But we're not making a separate claim alleging <laughs> the invalidity of this section. We just have a claim on the merits. And then in the course of litigating that, we think the section is you know, invalid. But that's that's just a provision for if somebody new files some kind of claim against the statute, it doesn't apply to us. Um, I mean... Which seems silly, but I do think that yeah. section may not have been worded, you know, quite the way you would want. Yeah, or, I can see that, but still, but, I mean, I think that 
probably a reasonable construction of the language would would, would say that the Fourth Circuit doesn't have jurisdiction. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Most interesting question about the case is what is the easiest level of the triple threat to resolve? Like, there are some members of the court who are skeptical about this kind of jurisdiction stripping legislation. And the first two layers of the triple threat split the court multiple ways in a case called Pacek versus Zinke a couple terms ago. You know, the court passed the statute that said, you know, part one, the gun lake taking or whatever it is, the gun lake act is fine. Part two, no court has any jurisdiction about this. And so, you know, is it easier to resolve the merits? Is it easier to resolve on jurisdiction grounds? I take it the venue ground might be the easiest ground. Although one of my colleagues and I were arguing yeah. with this case, and he, he did say, you know, he was a little skeptical of the venue provision because he said, look, every court always has jurisdiction to determine its own jurisdiction. And you can imagine, I mean, imagine a statute that said, you know, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals shall be required to immediately execute all of its law clerks <laughs> with no due process. Part two, you know, any challenge to the constitutionality of part one because we heard exclusively by the D.C. Circuit. Like, does the Fourth Circuit just have to, like, start executing them and see, what, <laughs> you know? It seems like no. But the Fourth Circuit would have jurisdiction to determine its own jurisdiction, but in doing so would presumably have to then resolve that jurisdictional question by saying it didn't have jurisdiction, right? If it was interpreting the law correctly. Well, unless they can prove not, not in the stripping. example you just gave, right. I think it, would raise all sorts of other problems, which raise constitutional problems, right? Right. Unless they conclude the jurisdiction stripping provision violates Klein and that Patrick versus Zinke doesn't have a majority opinion, so there's no binding ruling under Marx. You know, there's a yeah, and know. the problem, you know, that that you know the controversy and Patchak and is when Congress is not just changing substantive law in addition to stripping jurisdiction, but but arguably sort of saying how a particular case should come out. Right, that's the thing you're not that 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 arguably that it can't do. Right. What is it in Smith versus Jones? Jones wins. And Smith versus Jones, Smith wins. Smith wins. Right. The same thing, right? No, it might be important. I actually but. think. I think Patrick versus Zinke stands for the proposition that Congress probably can say Jones wins because Jones is the defendant. Like they can effectively mm. say, look, there's a pending lawsuit, like stop. Yeah. One way or another, stop. That's different from taking a lawsuit that's going to change the status quo and making it suddenly work. Is um, that because of does it matter who the plaintiff and defendant is and whether they have like property interests at stake? Might. I mean, so right, I think that. The squarest case of Smith versus Jones, Smith wins presenting a problem is where Smith is trying to get Jones's property, and so mm -hmm. there will be a due process yeah. violation. Yeah. And the easiest case of Smith versus Jones, Jones wins, is if Jones is the United States, and so, yeah. and which is what two justices said in Patchak was because the United States is the defendant and the United States has sovereign immunity, you can always kind of unwave sovereign immunity. So at least in Smith versus U.S., you can always say yeah. U.S. wins. And then you know, there's a range in between. Um, the Smith versus Jones thing is a footnote in a case called Bank Marcazi, where the court first started grappling with some of these modern, like one case only jurisdiction stripping statutes. Yeah. There's no actual such case, but I like the way it's now become like it's seeped into the Fed Court's lexicon. So I sometimes, you know, just like quiz my Fed Court's class on like, you know, the, the case of Smith versus Jones, which they have to recognize as this important hypothetical case that now appears in several footnotes. Do they like that? Uh, the good ones do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I guess you know one thing, kind of you know, important question in a case like this with the jurisdiction strip is going to be, you know, does it implicate constitutional questions, or is this a situation where, you know, Congress just has the underlying power to change the substantive law without violating somebody's constitutional rights? Because if the former, arguably, you know, the jurisdiction strip 
doesn't really isn't really doing any additional work, right? Right. Just gilding the lily. Right. And that's true of this case as well as Patrack, is that in a way the first layer of the triple threat is just look, you guys are challenging this statute under this pipeline under NEPA. NEPA yeah. not under the Constitution. NEPA is a statute. And so we say NEPA is hereby repealed to the extent that it applies yeah. to the pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have a really aggressive theory to think that Congress can't do that. Yeah. I think there are state there are many states in which the state legislature can't do that. There are many states in which there's a state constitutional doctrine of like special privileges where you can't pass laws that say like this corporation gets a special deal but we do that for sort of like a flip side of like a bill of attainder yes situation exactly. exactly and like you know dating back to like the skepticism of like british monopolies and um, it's an interesting heritage of it but it's not a thing for federal pipelines all right so it sounds quite likely that Fourth Circuit will kind of get the uh, get the message, um, veiled or not, uh, yeah. and then maybe there will be a case in the D.C. Circuit. I strongly suspect this is going to go nowhere, and we won't have to get back to the court on this. What do you think? I think that's probably right. I mean, there is this. I've seen this claim that the Fourth Circuit is now the most liberal circuit in the country. Which of course, the D.C. Circuit is not a you know has some yeah. number of Democrats on it too, though. Right. Well, and of course, all circuits are just full of judges trying to do their level best. So I regard this claim as silly. Especially especially the Fifth Circuit, right? <laughs> Fifth Circuit is the new Ninth Circuit, I think. But And then one quick correction on our, I think it was our last episode when we were talking about Jones versus Hendricks. We were talking about this underlying case, Rahafe, about the knowledge requirements for the rules about possessing a gun, which I described as being about, you know, being a felon and knowing you're a felon or not. But Rahafe himself in the Rahafe case was not a felon. His issue was his immigration status. That's the issue was did he have knowledge of his that his immigration status in let him possess a gun? Not a felon. Sorry, Mr. Rahafe. Appreciate your intellectual honesty in, in making that correction, although it strikes me as immaterial and one that I would have just pretended didn't happen personally. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. But you're 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 too principled for that. That seemed like an important point. It was a very, very brief thing we discussed, right? I think so, but yeah. You're a principled guy. You know, you podcast long enough, you just have to accept that you're going to say stuff that's wrong, probably every time, and just live with it. And that's okay. The balance, you say enough things that are right, or at least interesting, you know, people, people make people happy enough. I do accept it. I can live with it. I just try to get it right. Later. Okay, An earlier me would have been paralyzed by even saying anything on a podcast for fear yeah. that I said something wrong and permanently yeah. ruined my reputation. But yeah, this is this is the, I think an early career scholar mistake: the, the refusal to say anything on the possibility they might get something wrong. Yeah, like I remember, you know, the first time I was asked to do something on the radio, I spent like all morning, you know, prepping, and then like they like didn't even call me because they like bumped me for somebody more famous. Yeah, and now I'm like, yeah, if I'm free, I'll talk to you. You know, say whatever. But there is this late career scholar mistake where you just like opine on anything you know alan dershowitz just like or richard painter just has a view on like yeah. every question richard uh, Epstein. Uh-huh. totally fair so i feel like there's a sweet spot yeah are we in it are we goldie goldilocks zone goldilocks is going to come back in a minute maybe yeah. hope so but but only only our listeners uh can tell one other thing Twitter a little bit. I, I, you know, reiterated my view that the uh, 
the Justice Thomas Venmo scandal is not a scandal. You went on Twitter? Yeah. I still, you know, log in every once in a while. Wow. It's, it's a shell of its former self. I think it's, are we, I'm not even sure I'm supposed to call it Twitter anymore. Maybe it's just X. But, you know, there's still some folks on there, still get some engagement. And the other, the alternative is pretty bad. Threads is terrible. I'm on Threads. It's terrible. I don't want to use it. Uh, Blue Sky is actually pretty good, but nobody's on it. So that's a problem. So, yeah, jump back into Twitter. And I got some, a lot of people sort of pushing back and, you know, with arguments I thought were not very persuasive. One was like, well, he did all this other corrupt stuff. And I was like, well, okay, but like, that's not really that's not the allegation here. The allegation is this thing. And as far as I know, uh, like pretty much like every justice does like reunion events with clerks. And then the clerks have to like pay their own way. Cause like the justices don't have like thousands of dollars to like pay for events. Mm-hmm. That seems okay to me. And then some other people were like, well, that's the fact that they do it makes it still bad. Uh, and it's the bad thing is like that the justices are like, hanging out in this like close cloistered environment with like other Supreme court lawyers. I'm just like, what do you want? Like, okay. Like at a certain point, like these people are going to have friends. Okay. I'd actually rather have them hang out with their law clerks who they had this like professional relationship with rather than just like random people who are cozying up to them because they're famous and powerful. It's not an option to just say they're not allowed to friends. Right. It's also funny in a world where they, you know, there are more protests than there used to be like at their houses and other places they might go that are, open to the public. So then it's, you know, especially less, yeah. less surprising. Like, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're yeah. Going to socialize the group of people who aren't going to protest them in a place that the protesters aren't allowed. Like, I don't know what yeah. expected. Yeah. It's just like, just, this drives me a little crazy. I think this is one of these places where I, it, it really bothers me when, uh, sort of folks sort of on the left who, about whom I, you know, would be inclined to agree with a, f- a lot of things kind of make arguments that are kind of like, going to be seen as transparently partisan, right? I I feel like it's self-defeating. You're like making this big deal about Justice Thomas's Venmo, but you're not even writing an article about the fact that like Justice Stevens and Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer, whoever have reunions where like former clerks have to pay their own way. Like I had to pay a lot more for the Kennedy reunion, right? Because it was like a black tie dinner, you know, with catered dinner. It wasn't a gift. It wasn't corrupting. You know, no one has ever thought that that was a problem until this $20 Venmo thing happened. And so like, just, you know, you know, focusing on the kind of fake scandals, like distracts, is a distraction from like things that actually might be scandals because it makes people, makes it harder for people to tell the difference and only selectively choosing to, you know, try to generate scandals about conduct that, you know, just liberal justices engage in too, like, also just like makes those criticisms have a lot less force. It makes people on the other side be like, this is, you don't actually believe this. Okay. You're just coming up with this thing to try to get justice Thomas. And so like, do, you, do you think that's actually true of how the discourse works or just how it should work? Cause I, obviously I agree with you, you know, in principle, I just, you see in the media and politics, sometimes if you just say over and over and over again, like negative stuff about politician X, maybe it has an effect and kind of like, well, oh, I've got stuff. I think maybe it has an effect in riling up your base. I think it it eliminates any possibility of bipartisan compromise or agreement. Maybe that was never possible. You said you like actually to start with the the less hot buttony cases. So you wanted to start with countermen. Yeah, the interesting cases. Well, the other one's actually pretty interesting too. I actually found both of these today particularly interesting. Uh, but 
Counterman is a First Amendment case. It is about the scope of an exception to the First Amendment, so kind of speech that has historically been seen as unprotected, which is a true threat. What's a true threat versus fake threat? (laughs) I'm not sure if it's true threat versus fake threat, or true threat is a way of saying threat, punishable threat. Threat that is punishable under the First Amendment, as opposed to it's a cue that not all things you might call threats are punishable. Yeah. So, I mean, if someone, you know, walks up to you and says, I'm going to kill you, you know, right? Like, and they intend to scare the living daylights out of you, they can be, that could, that could be a crime. There's no First Amendment problem for that. You don't get to say, oh, I was just like, you know, saying that for fun, right? If you, you, at least if you, at least uh, if you, knew and intended the person to be like really scared they intend to they intend to make you think they actually mean that um i think if your boss you do something wrong and your boss says oh my god apps i'm gonna kill you if you do that again and they do intend for you to be scared but not scared of getting killed just scared of getting fired i think there probably wouldn't be a true threat yeah but that's something different if you well i do think yeah I mean, we're in a world where obviously like the people toss around death threats a lot in the world. And so thinking yeah. of, and like a lot of them are unpleasant, right? And thinking about when the what it is that it has to be true, what exactly it has to convey, I guess in a way that's part of what this what this doctrine is about. But yes, if if somebody makes like a specific actual threat, like I'm going to do X to you, the goal of which is to communicate that they're gonna do X to you. And X is like a violent thing, a bad thing. Yeah. Not just yeah. like I'm gonna be mean to you. Yeah, I think it has to be at a minimum illegal and maybe also violent. Uh, maybe also violent. Then, you know, then that's a problem. So I think there's no disagreement that that, that category exists, right? There is this category that of unprotected speech. And, and the way the, the court has been operating for a while, at least since 2008 case called Stevens, is to just say, look, First Amendment protects speech, except for like this list of categories of speech that isn't protected. Is that fair? And and it even says this category dates back to the founding. Yeah. First Amendment protects speech, except for a, a category of unprotected speech that goes back from the founding to the present. That's sort of like grandfathered into the original meaning of the First Amendment or something. Yeah. Uh, the government just doesn't get to just like make up new categories. Right. Maybe... Uh, Arguably, child pornography is one, but maybe that just fits into the traditional obscenity category. I think that's right. That's what the court has, in, in fact, said, that the child pornography is just a subset of the original obscenity category. Um, or maybe of the speech integral to criminal conduct exception. Uh, mm. Put it in both, both yeah. categories. But yes. And they do say in Stevens, in principle, we could newly recognize some historically unprotected category that we've never talked about before. Like, we never really thought about it, but we now realize that, you know, some category is unprotected. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So everybody agrees there's a threats exception to the First Amendment, or the threats, some category of threats are outside of the freedom of speech. And so, of course, the question is, what's a threat? Yeah. And maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, the court had a case called Elonis versus United States about rap lyrics, <laughs> about somebody who posted on his facebook page a set of words that one might think of as extremely violent threats <laughs> to i think it was his ex-wife yeah. maybe yeah uh, or, it's kind or of like might... a, a fourth rate uh, m&m 
who is trying to write very bad rap lyrics. Or um, one might think of it as rap lyrics, you know, traffic and certain yeah. tropes that others might find threatening. And so the question was, what kind of knowledge do we have to prove or intent or what kind of mens rea do we have to prove to prosecute the presence as a threat? And the court resolved the case on basically statutory interpretation grounds and thus avoided the constitutional question. The court concluded that the federal threats statute should be interpreted to have a fairly high mens rea, uh, you know, in keeping with these cases we've talked about in some ways where yeah. the court kind of reads a lot of a lot of mens rea requirements into, into federal law, yeah. like Rahafe. But now, you know, it, hey, Anthony having, alone has followed me on Facebook and uh, no, Twitter for for a while. Did you know that? No. Did he threaten you? No. But but I did notice eventually that his account seems to be gone, and I don't know why. My uh-huh. my guess was that it was suspended because he was threatening people, but I'm not really sure. Could be advice of counsel. Yeah, but I, I screen capped him following me, and actually like worked that into my slides when I was teaching Alonis in criminal law a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Students enjoyed mm-hmm. that, but we did not. Anthony Anthony and I did not did not exchange DMs, but now I wish I had because I can't communicate with him anymore you can probably find him somewhere probably but i don't want to yeah okay but so this case is different right because this case is a case coming from colorado it's not a federal case and so it's purely a constitutional case it's not statutory interpretation with constitutional issues lurking in the background exactly now the case fact pattern is weird in a couple ways some of which we'll probably talk about but in a nutshell the defendant mr catterman sent a large quantity, hundreds of messages across various kinds of social media to this woman, a a musician who he did not know and had never met, which, you know, alarming for reasons apart, you know, from their content or from, from sort of threatening this, just in, there were so many of them, she kept trying to block him and he would occasionally find, you know, a new account or some new way to contact her. They made it seem like he was talking to her or knew her. You know, occasionally made it seem like he was following her. So it's sort of like an alarming, you know, surrounding yeah. to the whole the whole thing. And there are a few of them that that had some that were particularly threatening, right? Yeah. One said, you know, staying in cyber life is going to kill you. Another said, you're not being good for human relations, die. One said, fuck off permanently. And so <clears throat> there's a sort of threatening aspect to it. The the mens rea issue came up. Because there's an argument, apparently, that Mr. Catterman is quite mentally ill, and that, in particular, he was under the illusion that she was replying to him, um, that he was like hearing her getting subliminal messages. In some way, she, she was, you know, there was another side of the conversation that he was, that he was hallucinating. But, you know, if that were true, then a lot of the, a lot of the messages, even the most threatening ones, seem very different in context. Right. So he could say, you know, yes, I understand why these messages were really alarming to you, given what you knew, but given what I thought was going on, I didn't mean for them to be, you know, this is just the banter yeah. in our online relationship. But he was not allowed to present that evidence because as a matter of state law, his intent didn't matter. And so the court has to decide whether that state law is constitutional. So state law was looking at these from an objective perspective. Right. Like, you know, would these have statements kind of reasonably caused a, a victim to feel afraid or been reasonably understood to be threats? Right. If you got if you got this string of messages, what would a what would a reasonable person in the in, in the victim's yeah. position have thought? Rather than what was actually what was he trying to do? And the court says state law is unconstitutional. 
that that there does have to be some heightened proof of proof of mens rea. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and the case is interesting because you end up with kind of three kind of crystallized positions, right? And in the sense that you have the majority opinion, it's Justice Kagan joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Alito, Kavanaugh, and Jackson. Mm -hmm. And then you've got an opinion concurring uh, in part and in the judgment by Justice Sotomayor that Justice Gorsuch joins, sort of Mm -hmm. saying, you know, the court goes to, you know, basically doesn't go far enough. You know, the court should have resolved this on different grounds, but I also would go have a higher bar. And and then you've got, you know, short thing by Justice Thomas, and then a longer dissenting opinion by Justice Barrett, joined by Justice Thomas, who, you know, think the court goes too far and want less protection. So kind of three three camps. And they don't perfectly line up ideologically, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. And that and that at least in terms of where Justice Gorsuch is. You know, and we have, you know, Justices Hagan and Jackson where with you know, the Chief Justice, Justice Alito and Kavanaugh. I find to talk about quite sure I understand. I understand one of the points that the Gorsuch Sotomayor team makes or that Justice Sotomayor makes. I'm not sure I totally understand where to place them on the on the spectrum. Yeah. But yeah. But yes, I agree. I mean, yeah, all of this is these are not obvious how, how everybody lines up. Yeah. Um, well, what do you think? In terms of the bottom line? Yeah. I think it's really interesting. So I I read all three of the opinions and I found things to like about each of them. The Kagan opinion is interesting and it has some of the same features of some of her kind of substantive criminal law opinions that we've talked about here and there uh, insofar as it relies on a lot of kind of mint model penal code type concepts. It doesn't really say that that's what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it sort of lays out this hierarchy of mens rea standards that comes from the model penal code. Yeah. It says, you know, the law of mens rea offers three basic choices. Purpose is the most culpable level. And then next down is knowledge and the next is recklessness. And it sort of uses the definition of recklessness that comes from the model penal code, which is, you know, conscious disregard a substantial uh, and unjustifiable risk that the conduct will cause harm to another, quoting a case called Voisin, another Kagan case from a little while ago. Uh, and But then the thing that sort of slays these out, and then the thing that's sort of interesting is that what it ends up doing is sort of saying, well, there's threats, they're not protected, but there's this concern that we uh, have that, you know, uh, how we punish that could cause this chilling effect. And so we need to kind of tinker with the standard a little bit to create some breathing room. And so we think the right way to do that is to set the line at recklessness. Yeah. And how do we know it's recklessness rather than intent? And how do we know that that recklessness does that better than like intent or something stricter? Uh, Well, I think the court thinks that like there's less, that some places you need intent because like there might be protected conduct, protected speech that you care about that's like right on the other side of the line. And so we want to have like a higher barrier to avoid mm-hmm. chilling. But here we're less worried about that because of the, the kinds of speech at issue. Yeah. It's interesting also because I guess this comes up in other kinds of unprotected speech, right? So like I think for incitement, we require intent rather than just recklessness. Uh, you have to actually be, be trying to get people to do something. For libel... 
like New York Times versus Sullivan type cases, it's recklessness is the standard, right? Yeah. Although I mean, arguably it's kind of like an extreme version of recklessness. Yeah. But it's not, but you can, but the point is you can be prosecuted for, you can sue for libel, even for a public figure, you know, for things that even if you didn't know is false. Yeah. There's some, there's some level where it doesn't require knowledge. Recklessness is sufficient. Uh, so it's interesting that we have this like different array of different mens reas that are apparently yeah. all constitutionally required, but slightly different. Um, it seems kind of awkward. I mean, maybe yeah. that's right, but. Yeah. And there's kind of a sort of debate running through all the opinions in the case about like what some of the other areas of First Amendment law have like said about mm -hmm. the required mens rea. So, you know, Justice Sotomayor says that in obscenity cases, you actually need kind of knowledge before some obscenity can be punished. Justice Kagan says we haven't really resolved that. Justice Barrett says, no, you only need the knowledge of, you know, what the thing is, but you don't need to have any knowledge of obscenity. A lot of kind of disagreement about, you know, precedent. Yeah. When, this, when, go ahead. No, you go ahead. This like last point also goes to this, like there's this funny footnote in the court's opinion about like knowledge of what footnote two. Yeah. Where the court says, you know, first we have to clarify between awareness of a communication's contents and awareness of its threatening nature. Because I guess everybody agrees that you have to have awareness of its contents. So the court uses the example, you know, if a defendant delivers a sealed envelope without knowing that it contains a threat inside, you know, you're not liable. Yeah. Or so too, parentheses, though this common example seems fairly preposterous. <laughs> if a foreigner, ignorant of the English language, who would not know the meaning of the words, somehow manages to convey an English language threat. I don't think that's as uh, preposterous as Justice Kagan thinks. You know, but this case is assuming you do understand the content of your words, but you don't understand why they're threatening. That's like another. Yeah. Yeah. But so here you do need recklessness. The defendant needs to be proven to have acted recklessly with regard to the risk that the other person would take it as a threat. Right. Right. There's this interesting uh, debate running through the different opinions about this case, Virginia versus black. Yeah. Right. This is this case about state statute that criminalized cross burning that was done with the uh, intent to intimidate. Yeah. And that case sort of came in the wake of an earlier case called RAV versus St. Paul, which had struck down a local cross-burning ordinance as sort of a, a speech restriction. But the court in Virginia versus Black said, you know, this is okay to the extent that it requires proof of intent to intimidate, right? right. But yeah. the question, there's this question running through the opinions here about like, was that a constitutional ruling? Was the court saying that like, that's the required standard for like the cross-burning statute to be unconstitutional or not? I went back and, and looked at it again you know, there's, there's, you know, kind of a, a Marx rule situation where Justice Scalia doesn't join everything in that, in that opinion. But gosh, I really thought that Justice Sotomayor was right here, actually, that if you look back at it, it's kind of hard to make sense of that opinion, other than it's saying that like, you know, you needed for it to be punishable, you're needed to be, there needed to be intent. Yeah. What do you think? And that's, uh, by the way, that's always what I had understood the case to stand for. But then you have both the, the majority and the dissent by Justice Barrett kind of contorting themselves to say that's not really what 
that case was about. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but... Yeah, I guess I'm with you. I share your understanding of Virginia versus Black itself. I think this is actually the case that... It's the reason I went to law school. Say more. When I was in college, I took a class on the First Amendment taught by Dennis Hutchinson, who recently retired here. And this was one of the classes, cases that was pending, and we sort of talked through on both sides. And then the night before one of my math finals, I was staying up late, like reading the oral argument transcript in this case, trying to understand what was going on, and like realized it was a sign that I shouldn't, you know, maybe pursue the PhD study in math, but should find some way to get into this law thing. What, how did the math test go? Uh, I got an A, but... Is that really... Were you on the way towards a math PhD otherwise? Uh, I, was, I was majoring in math. I was thinking of becoming an economist or something, you know, statistics, something in that, in that world. I don't think I knew um, that. I think I must have known you majored in math, but I, I guess I would have thought you as like being more of a, you know, philosopher type if you weren't going to be a law type. I took a philosophy class and loved it. And the professor told me that if I liked his class, I should not major in philosophy because all the other philosophers thought that the stuff he did was unimportant. What was, the, what I, was the, the subtopic? I was called, it was called philosophical perspectives. It was sort of a form of analytic philosophy. Hmm. And then I read a book by A.J. Ayer called Language, Truth, and Logic, which is sort of the beginning of logical positivism. Hmm. And I emailed many of the professors in the philosophy department cold and said, I read this book. It seems obviously correct, but strangely, it does not seem to have successfully destroyed the field of metaphysics. So there must be some sort of like convincing response. Could you please point me to the convincing response? Um, were you ignored or? Uh, my memory is like half of them responded to me. And of the half that responded, like half of those had a substantive response, like, oh, go read Hillary Putnam or go mm. read J.L. Austin. And I did. And that was interesting, but did not satisfy me. And that just made me concerned that the things, the philosophy is not going to be a good home for me. Hmm. Um, Where were you on the early Wittgenstein? Early Wittgenstein is pretty good. Okay. Logical positivist. Yeah. Before he changes Late, course. Wittgenstein might be brilliant, might be yeah. incomprehensible. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, like, I, I, I would say that about the early as well. Yeah. I like David Hume a lot. That's like my, you know, David Hume is kind of the proto-logical positivist. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so I think I share your view of the opinion. I guess I do. wrote a thing a long time ago. The very first piece of legal scholarship I wrote implicated these issues, by the way. Really? It was a case comment in her law review, my 2L year, published in 2007, about this case coming out of the Ninth Circuit called Harper versus Poway Unified School District. I don't know if you, yeah. you remember this one. This is the case about. The t-shirt. Yeah, yeah this, the student that the school had kind of a, a day of day of tolerance sort of in, in support of gay rights and the student in question didn't like that, objected to it. And so wore t-shirt sort of noting his disagreement, said, I will not accept what God has condemned. Homosexuality is shameful and was disciplined. You know, he brought a first amendment suit under a classic case called Tinker, which says, you know, state, you know, school can't punish students for, you know, their speech that isn't, you know, disruptive, right? If they're just sort of, you know, wearing black armbands or something to make a protest, you know, they're allowed to do that. First Amendment doesn't stop at the schoolhouse gate. Uh, Ninth Circuit, opinion by Justice Reinhardt, did something very, very wacky and, uh, you know, powerful consent, dissent by by Justice Kaczynski. So, so two of the kind of Ninth Circuit rogues. And 
I took a kind of middle path where I said I relied on actually relied on Virginia versus Black and said, look, look, if you're talking about uh, when a student can wear a shirt or be disciplined for wearing a shirt that is arguably, you know, derogatory towards another group or that would 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 cause, you know, certain students to kind of feel bad, right? You should look at intent, right? The intent of the speaker should matter. Are they doing it to to harass another student or not? Or are they just making a more generalized political message? No. There you go. You agree? Well, do students have first amendment rights? Well, okay, but take that for granted. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, same same question. I, I uh so look, so I was gonna say I like this analysis, generally being a pro free speech guy. And I do think it's consistent with Virginia versus black, but it's also not clear the court was really thinking about this problem in Virginia versus black. Like, I feel like it reflects their assumption that threats are about the intent to intimidate. But, and again, that, that assumption is sort of borne out in state law anyway. And it's, I got the impression that nobody was really thinking about, well, <laughs> what about a, you know, they mentioned that cross burning, you know, originally comes from medieval Scotland. What about some weird Scottish Highlander who appeared here by time travel and had no idea that, you know, cross burning was uh, conveyed this or something like i get the sense that was just not on the table or you know what about a mentally ill person who thinks he's engaged in some other kind of conversation so it both seems right about the case but i also don't know how much we should read the case for maybe i, just, I guess i sort of read the case as saying it was constitutional because of that yeah but again it's, like it's constitutional because it's limited to intentional threats yeah but had virginia then amended the statute to say also we're going to throw reckless threats in there yeah, there would have had to be a Virginia versus Black too, where they say, uh, "Is that consistent with the reasons we think intent is okay?" And I guess part of the question is, what? Why do we have a threats exception? Like, what is it trying to capture? Right? If the threats exception yeah. is trying to capture something like something kind of like incitement, right? You're like essentially planning a future crime that you're just like communicating now. Yeah, that I think you'd want intent, right? Because the <laughs> it applies. The presumption is that there is some kind of future crime. That you, that you have in mind or that you're you know at least I like i don't think that's if, right i think you can intend to you can you can intend to scare someone even if you have no intent to actually carry out the threat right well right but, but at least you're you're rep, you're representing yourself as somebody who yeah who is going to commit a future crime whereas if it's if threats are more just about the harm to the victim which is about like like look this is really like unpleasant stuff to get and we can kind of safely carve that off as prohibited without threatening the rest of the first amendment that's, I take it that's the instinct behind an objective test, yeah. right? It's just to say, the instinct of like, especially on the internet, like, look, some of this stuff is just nasty, adds nothing to discourse, and you shouldn't do it. And that under that test, an objective test would be adequate, right? Yeah. So. But you could nonetheless, you could think it's more about the victim, but nonetheless feel like you still need this guardrail of an objective test because of the risk of error of a subjective test, right? Which is. Right. And that's, I think it's sort of how the majority ends up is like yeah. they're partly thinking about it from the point of view of the victim but they yeah. want some guardrails yeah and thus recklessness is a sufficient guardrail yeah to sort of a, you know balance them yeah what about the methodology here because you know we started and this is why you, you mentioned that the modern frame for this doctrine is this kind of formalistic like oh well these exceptions were handed down from james madison to the present and so here, here they are and yet here you have this the court including you know, the author Stevens engaging in a much more kind of a common law attitude about those exceptions. Are those, is that? I totally agree with that. 
I thought that was really interesting. There's very little, in the majority, very little engagement with history to try to find some grounding for this. It's really just, you know, you know, we sort of get to make it up. Uh, a lot of reliance on New York Times versus Sullivan, famous First Amendment case about the requirement of, you know, recklessness, actual malice before someone can be punished or held liable for, you know, speech about public figures on a matter of public concern. Um you know, very kind of functionalist. And it does, this case does divide the six conservatives, I think, sort of in half, right? We've got Roberts, Alito, Kavanaugh with the majority, and then you have Gorsuch with Sotomayor, and you have Barrett and Thomas in dissent, which I think maybe maybe this is sort of like most originalist to least originalist. Is that fair? Mm. Maybe you'd put Gorsuch and Barrett with, so Thomas the most, Gorsuch and Barrett, but Gorsuch second most. And then maybe Barrett, and then the rest? Yeah, maybe. And maybe also if there's a formalist, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but a formalist versus functionalist line. I think mm-hmm. of Alito, Kavanaugh, and Roberts in different ways as yeah. being much more functionalist. Well, I guess I see those two lines as kind of overlapping a little bit. Right. But maybe yeah. they're distinct. I, we don't have to, yeah. Do you think that that combo, whether it makes sense, sort of does, does accurately describe the doctrine that the court takes pretty seriously like you need these historical exceptions but then it engages in kind of pretty free common law reasoning about you know what is the libel exception and defines the libel exception in a way that that clearly would not have been known at the founding or justice scalia has an old opinion case called williams versus united states about like it's about like you know purveying or advertising like obscenity online where he says some very similar things he says like you know, there's always been an obscenity exception. And then in the middle of the 20th century, we kind of defined the obscenities exception really narrowly to make sure there was enough breathing space for the non-obscene stuff. And then we realized that we defined it so narrowly that we had to add in child pornography. And it was kind of admitted. It was, you know, I think, an accurate description of what the court had done. But I wonder what method yeah. that is. Is this yeah. is this general law? Is this, is this a general law approach to freedom of speech? Like, I think it's a common law approach. Okay, right, good. which is slightly different. It's kind of a, you know, David Strauss more. common law. We sort of let's rely on precedent. Let's kind of make it up as we go, which is not the same thing as a general law approach, I don't think. Yeah, you're right. It's a little more judge-made. Yeah. A little more hands on Consciously so. And Justice Barrett accuses the majority of doing kind of a Goldilocks approach. <laughs> and I thought, uh, I thought Justice Kagan had a really nice zinger in response. She says, in law, as in life, there are worse things than being just right. I like that so much. And it was made me wonder, like, how often when someone has, like, a the dissent says something and the majority has some, like, really great response to it, how often does the dissenter just, like, yank that from the dissent? Because, you know, there's a lot of revision back and forth. But I guess that's sort of, like, conceding defeat, if that happens. Uh, I think some dissenters would, but yeah, I think you either, sometimes the dissenter doesn't agree it's a good response, right? (laughs) Right. And sometimes the dissenter just might have enough of a sense of humor that they, you know. I thought that was nice. Yeah. Okay. We got to save a little bit of time for the other one if we're going to get to it. Okay. Final things you want to say about this? Uh, Just one thing about the Sotomayor Gorsuch dissent. They make this interesting point that was made in an amicus brief by my colleague Genevieve Lakier, as as well as Eugene Volokh and Evelyn Duick that it's weird to think of this as a threats case because what's really going on is the separate problem of stalking. Yeah. Like it's less about the fact that two of the messages said, you know, die. Yeah. 
than it is about the fact that there are like hundreds and hundreds of them and she doesn't want to receive them. Yeah. And so and that just presents a whole different, like, is there a stalking except in the First Amendment? How do we think about it? What are its elements? Ought to be a separate question, and you ought to be careful in this case not to compromise what's true of that case, uh, which Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch sort of note explicitly, and the majority I'm less sure about. Um, but but in yeah. a way, that makes this a sort of a weird vehicle. But Yeah, yeah. So they seem to be deciding a much bigger question, right? And one that, like, resolves this issue not just for criminal law, but just for all contexts, right? Arguably, well, that's that, sort of a Justice Barrett point in dissent. Right. Yeah, that's hard to figure out because this is sort of how the state prosecuted and teed up the case for better or worse. So I can't tell in a future stalking case, you know, if there's a separate statute that doesn't turn on this at all, will the will there just be a new yeah. a new test or not? But that is part of what makes the case the case weird. Yeah. But let's talk about the other case. Okay. Other case or or cases rather are the two student loan cases. Is this uh, one of those times where you the cases are going to be known like it's like the slaughterhouse cases, the civil <laughs> rights cases, they're going to go down as like the Jack Balkan tried to get that to happen for NFIB versus Sebelius. He tried to get them labeled as the healthcare cases. Yeah. These are going to be doesn't, the student sometimes, loan cases. Sometimes sometimes like the the Supreme Court reporters actually like put those titles in the US reports that helps a lot. Yeah. Didn't do that here. Um so one of these cases is unanimous. Everybody's happy, right? Seems like this is supposed to be one of the most contentious hot button political cases of of the term. And then you get to this one and it's a unanimous opinion by Justice Alito. No separate writings. The Fifth Circuit's not happy. Yeah. And there, in that case, we find that some of the plaintiffs who were trying to enjoin President Biden's student loan relief don't have standing. No standing. Indeed. Why not? Because, so the plaintiffs, Brown and Taylor, their complaint is, the way they're injured is they they, they wanted more, more relief. Yeah. Or they wanted relief or they wanted more relief. And what they're But they also for, want to be able to say that the president has no power to do this at all. Well, that's the, pro- that's the problem. They have no standing because their injury is they didn't get more relief. But what they're seeking is to take the relief away from everybody. Like if I can't have two cookies, then you can't have yeah. any. And, and then they, they also have this argument that, well, you could have done this under a different provision, right? Well, so that's the sophisticated version of their argument. And Justice Leto, there's this, there's this sort of delicate passage where Justice Leto says, you know, their theory of the case has not always been clearly explained, has not always been readily ascertainable or consistently described during this litigation. Uh, but the most generous way to understand their theory is uh, you went through the HEROES Act, which doesn't require notice and comment, and is illegal. If we stop you from going through the HEROES Act, you probably will still give us relief under some other act, the Higher Education Act, which does require notice and comment, during which time we will issue comments saying we should get relief, and maybe we will. So, like, stop this giant program, because then they'll do it over again, and when they do it over again, it'll go better, because we'll get to participate. That's, and then we'll, you know, then we'll get our relief. And the majority, I mean, the majority sensibly enough does not buy it. That's like... If everything in there were true and we were sure it happened, you can see the connection between what they want and what they what their injury is. But that's the kind of uh, speculative chain of causation involving third-party actors. That's like a classic area where the court finds no standing. So everybody seems to think this is easy enough. Okay, happy to yeah. happy to agree. 
Yeah. The only wild thing about this is that the Fifth Circuit had, I guess, bought this theory of standing. <laughs> Fifth Circuit buys a lot of theories. Uh, yeah. Well, I think the Fifth Circuit's reversal rate at the Supreme Court this term was extremely high, which is where the, the idea of the Fifth Circuit being the new Ninth Circuit came from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, in a number of places where the court seems to say, like, the Fifth Circuit, like, really screwed up, right? Yeah. Like, the court, you know, thinks this is pretty dumb. Right. And the thing I like most about this opinion, which is something I'm writing about with Sam Bray in an article that'll come out this fall, is the attention to sort of remedy and relief. Like, it's a standing case, but the problem is that the, we pay attention to what are the plaintiffs actually asking for, asking us to do. You know, does that make sense in light of the reasons that they're in court? The court focuses on that and includes the answers no. All right. That leaves us with the more controversial one, Biden versus Nebraska, Oof. Um, which is uh, kind of comes down, uh, I think, the way, you know, you sort of predicted it would when we, when we previewed this case live for a studio audience here at Washington University in St. Louis School mm -hmm. of Law, which is that the court says, yeah, I mean, not everybody has, has standing, but Mohila, the is the the Missouri kind of entity that services loans is going to be negatively affected by this. And, and Missouri, even though Mohila didn't bring suit Missouri, it's, you know, basically owned by Missouri, controlled by Missouri in some sense. And that's enough to give Missouri standing. Yeah. I think this is the theory that, that I call the least wrong yes. theory of standing. Yes. Um, I still think it's wrong, but it is the least strong theory of standing. Yeah. And we'll talk about, let's talk about what Justice Kagan says about that in a moment. But the court says they're standing, okay? And, and you, yep. you only need one person to have standing, right? One party to have standing. Why do you only need one party to have standing? I don't know. I, I thought you would know that. I mean, like, presumably, insofar as one person does you know there's there's a live suit that, that there's a live case or controversy and the court can reach the merits right i mean it yeah. sort of depends what that one person is asking for right well wouldn't you still need to know who the parties are to the suit like so first of all if nebraska doesn't have standing shouldn't this case be called biden versus missouri <laughs> <laughs> second of all like and this you can still a, be a party if not the court determines you don't have standing right it's not like we take your name off if you file suit in the district court and it turns out you don't have standing they don't like call the case like you know blank versus eps right Should, they would call it they'll they? call it bode versus eps if you can't if you have no standing to sue shouldn't you cease to be a party the suit existed it was resolved it's like still written down right no but you should go away i mean so this is a, a point that andrew Bruhl makes in his article on this the one good plaintiff rule like like who even is bound by the judgment one way or the other like you'd think that mm. if you're not a party, yeah. you shouldn't. If you don't have standing, you shouldn't be entitled to the rights, the rights and responsibilities of a party. You yeah. shouldn't be bound by a judgment for or against you. So at some point, somebody. I mean, maybe maybe the appellate court doesn't have to worry about it. Right? Maybe the appellate court can say, "Well, we're going to opine on the law, and somebody yeah. else should clean up like who the parties to this case are." Yeah, but it seems like somebody should figure out who the parties to this case are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it matters practically. I mean, because basically the case says. Something, it's a Supreme Court case saying something the government did is illegal, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's going to apply to the whole country, right? Just necessarily because it's the Supreme Court. Well, that's just it. So, like, suppose, I mean, suppose that the government wanted to play hardball, wanted to play Mark Tushnet and say, sure, we'll obey this decision as to the parties, but we're going to make every other party sue and get their own judgments. 
no, I guess I'm not going to do that. But if they did, we'd we'd want to <laughs> we'd yeah. want to know who that who that is, or and that would mean if, that like they they can't cancel loans that are serviced by Mohila, but they can cancel other loans. I guess so. Yeah. I also sort of wonder, like, could they just cancel the loans and pay Mohila? <laughs> hmm. If if Mohila's yeah. injury is lack of a finder fee, finder's fee, yeah. just say fine. <laughs> Here's a check. Yeah. But we don't have to like why you know, and this goes to remedy, I guess, yeah. which is another one of my hobby horses, but but why is it that the fact that Mohila didn't get its fee means that the only remedy is that forty three million people don't get loan relief? <laughs> it's like this, <laughs> it's a good this question. There's something in between those. Yeah. Remedy is supposed to yeah. be like in some way proportional to the harms. Not today, I guess. Not in this case. Yeah. Okay. All right. But so that, Mohila. yeah. So, so I think we kind of walked through the kind of arguments for standing on that Yeah. last time when, so you go back and listen to that episode, but there's a very, you know, there's certain adjectives we use for dissents usually. And I think this one deserves the adjective uh, vituperative. Which is an adjective I don't really see in daily life other than describing dissents. But <laughs> Justice Kagan um, is really mad about this. And, you know, all but sort of says, you know, sort of says this court is just like being a political body, right? And just like deciding stuff. It has no power to decide. Um, I mean, okay, we, we can argue with the tone in a second. But yeah, it's, it's a spicy dissent. I mean, yeah. she... It sort of has to be, right? Because if you're going to say, look, this is wrong because of Mohila, Mohif standing, like those don't, those don't immediately get the blood flowing if you're not yeah. a Fed courts professor. So, so Justice Kagan's trying to make it, you know, understand why you, you know, why you care about this, why this is an important constitutional guardrail intended to keep courts acting like courts. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, were you going to say about, about tone? Because well, we have this know. interesting response to the tone by the yeah. Chief Justice. So. I mean, look, Justice Kagan's dissent is sharp. Yeah. And of course, I think it's correct for all the reasons that, you know, I've already said. And I think it's well written. I didn't exactly get anger from it, though. I got like just yeah. just business. But yeah, so there's this this passage in the the three asterisk portion of yeah. the majority opinion, one of my favorite portions of majority opinions. It has become a disturbing feature of some recent opinions to criticize the decisions with which they disagree as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary. Uh, Reasonable minds may disagree with our analysis. In fact, at least three do see the dissent. But we do not mistake this plainly heartfelt disagreement for disparagement. It is important the public not be misled either. Any such misperception will be harmful to this institution and our country. So the majority is trying to spin this as, you know, look, there's a strongly, a heartfelt disagreement, but it's not disparaging the legitimacy of the court yeah but it's that is sort of a criticism of the dissent right it's trying to spin it but no so so i read this i read this in the most naively uh listeners are going to hate this way possible that that the chief is saying look there's a line like it's a line between sharp dissent and sort of like illegitimate you know bomb throwing and the dissent is on the right side of the line good job dissent don't be don't be misled into thinking they're bomb throwing, and I don't read the dissent as as dispelling that. I I I do, especially in light of the fact that Justice Kagan feels compelled to respond to it and sort of deny what she takes to be the charge. Right, well, she's saying the behest of a party that has suffered no injury, the majority decides a contested public policy issue properly belonging to the politically accountable branches and the people they represent. In saying so, in saying so strongly, I do not at all disparage those who disagree. 
the majority is right to make that point as well to say that reasonable lines are found on both sides of this case. And there's surely nothing personal to dispute here. But justices throughout history have raised the alarm when the court has overreached, when it has exceeded his proper limited role in our nation's governance. Governance it would have been disturbing and indeed damaging if they had not. The same is true in our own day. I mean, that's a direct response. Yeah, but again, I, that's, I, I read that as she's agreeing. It's, it's <laughs> no, not personal. No, it's not no, angry. <laughs> she is agreeing, but she is also responding to a charge. And she is saying, yes, you're right, but I'm allowed to say this. And yeah. it would have been bad if I hadn't. Yeah, and, and that is directed not. This is not an educational, you know, lesson for the public. This is a response to the chief justice. Yeah. Well, I think again, I think I think these look. I think these two paragraphs are carefully negotiated in agreement. Mm. So she is saying it's a sharp dissent. I have the goods in the majority, and they are exceeding their role under the constitution. And the majority is saying, "Fair enough, that's your charge, but we want to be clear that you're not you're not crossing the line, the the, <laughs> the illegitimacy line, are you?" You know, it's just as Alito would say to the Wall Street Journal, right? There comes a point when it crosses the line. She's not crossing the line. The line that. seems to be made up. Like, okay. like, what is the line? But, but they all seem to agree there's a line. And Justice Kagan is. I, I, if you can read these line. two things and say these are just two people that are completely in agreement, I think that's ridiculous. We have limited enough time to record that I'm not going to. This is going to be a, one of those places where I don't keep pressing you and people will be annoyed. But I'm just going to say for the record, I think, I think you were being del- deliberately obtuse here. I don't. Don't believe you believe that. I, this is one of those times when okay. I cannot understand why everybody else is taking crazy pills. Obviously, they disagree about the standing issue. Obviously, they disagree with the standing issue, but then they totally agree about the legitimacy question. They're saying both like, and it's tough as a dissent to say, you're violating the Constitution. You're violating Article 3. You're exceeding the power. You know, I'm not a bomb thrower. But she says, justices throughout history have raised the alarm. I think at that point is saying, this is important. It is important to say this. Like it is yes. important to raise the alarm, and you know, to the extent that the majority is implicitly saying we're going too far, which I think it is. Which I think any reasonable person would think it is. That it still is her duty to say so. Yeah, that's not what the majority is saying. <laughs> I know. The I'm going to let it go. Gonna, I'm going to let it go. I know they are. Yeah. I just, just don't leave me out of it, people. I'm I'm saying quite firmly that he's wrong, but I just yeah. I'm not going to spend ten more minutes on it. Okay. This is we have to stop recording very very soon because I got to go home, get my kids. Okay, all right. You want to say hi with the merits? Yeah. So there's this interesting, you know, question about the statute here, which we we talked about, and I think we we both said like it's pretty hard to see the government winning if they get to the statute. Yeah. Right. And here, the court does get to the statute and looks at the language that says. The Secretary of Education can waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applying to the student Mm -hmm. loan program. And as I understand what the majority does, it spends almost all of its time talking about modify and sort of says, well, this is this huge thing and it's radical and just, you know, all these implications and... And this comes from a prior Supreme Court case about the meaning of modify. Yeah. Hold on one second. Sorry, that was Daniel. Yep. She's going to need me to go in a second. But the court says, basically says, that just means a super small change. Yep. And or at least you don't modify something by destroying it. Yeah. And then it says a lot less about the waiver language, whereas Justice Kagan textually, I thought, made a pretty good argument that waive or modify basically means you can, you can either change it or get rid of it and everything in between. Yep. Yeah. So then they bolster it with some major questions doctrine. 
as an alternate holding uh, footnote that talks about my argument about sort of causation. But uh, and then we have an interesting concurrence by Justice Barrett, very kind of academic and really relying on her own scholarship explicitly, which is interesting. Not a, not all justices are willing to do that. Where she says, you know, look. Major questions doctrine is problematic if it's treated as kind of a substantive canon of interpretation. But instead, I see it as just kind of an idea that you're just looking at the context and interpreting statute. And it's sort of saying, look, in context, does it really seem likely that the court, that Congress would have authorized the agency to do this like a really, really big thing? I don't think so. So it's not like a special rule that says you go against the kind of ordinary interpretation. It's instead just a tool that you use in trying to figure out what Congress meant. Lots of interesting stuff there, but that's all we're going to talk about. Yeah. All right. Well, lead us out. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors. Please write in with requests for future coverage or complaints about my naivete. Yeah. That's pod at dividedargument.com. You can leave us a voicemail, 314-649-3790. Visit our website, dividedargument.com for transcripts of the episodes, store.dividedargument.com for merchandise. And if we don't record a new episode uh, for a long time, it's because we've been intimidated by threats from our listeners. Recklessly.